We've come to the, the, the final message in this uh, first part of our series, This Is My Son, Listen to Him, uh, the, the final section of the Sermon on the Mount, or as we're calling it, uh, Jesus' uh, Covenant Declaration. Our passage this morning, uh, Matthew seven thirteen to 29, is in one sense a bit of an epilogue to the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we saw at last week, verse 12, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. It's a concluding statement, not just for last week's passage, but really for all of Jesus' uh, unpacking and application of the law that has uh, this golden rule at the heart of it. Romans thirteen eight to 10 tells us, The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. But there's there's, one more part of this covenant declaration to come and it's a very important aspect of this covenant declaration when israel received the law at sinai they were warned solemnly against false worship the first two commandments of the ten commandments are you shall have no other gods before me and you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Entering into a covenant meant an exclusive loyalty to your sovereign. The Lord, as the one and only true God, would not allow, does not allow his glory to be given to idols, to the lords and the gods of human imaginations when we read the old uh, the stories of the old testament kings and we hear them described as uh, ahab did evil in the sight of the lord and there were more kings who did evil in the sight of the lord than who did good in the sight of the lord without exception the evil is explained by their introduction of foreign gods or their their failure to have the the idols and the shrines removed from the land. This was one of the king's key responsibilities to enable, uh, to ensure purity of worship in Israel. The judgment of the exile happened because Israel was given over to her idols. But the promise that the Lord gave to the exiles in speaking of their return was I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. That's Ezekiel 36. Now alongside this purity of worship was also the call to be discerning as they listened to prophets 
See, not all self-designated prophets were to be trusted or believed. Deuteronomy 13, 1-3 tells us, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, the final article of the Lord's Prayer, which corresponds to this part of the sermon, is lead us not into temptation or or testing, but deliver us from evil. And, And we've been seeing the corporate dimension of this prayer. It's lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. So that seen in the light of this covenant call to flee idolatry means that this is not so much about personal sin and temptation, but about us as the people of God being protected from the alluring pull of the idols. See how this prayer is in some ways a reflection on Deuteronomy 13, 1-3, asking that we, that we will not have to go through the testing of verse 3, but would only have prophets sent to us who speak the truth. So Jesus concludes his covenant declaration on the mountain with this solemn warning to watch out for the evil of false prophets who lead God's people into false worship. These false prophets are particularly dangerous because they come we're told in verse 15, in sheep's clothing. Their words sound appealing and gentle and positive, which is what they have to be if they're going to draw people in to believe a lie. Now, Jesus here is is echoing Jeremiah's denunciation of the false prophets of his day. He says in Jeremiah 8, The wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? Therefore, I will give their wives to others and their fields to conquerors, because from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace when there is no peace? Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. Now, Jeremiah was prophesying in the final decades before uh, the people of Judah were taken into exile and Jerusalem was uh, destroyed. 
he spoke clearly about this coming judgment of God, a judgment that was inevitable and a judgment that would last for 70 years. And now because of his prophecies, the people hated him, particularly the leaders against whom he was preaching in this passage. Jeremiah warned the people against these corrupt leaders, the the priests and the prophets who were saying, there's no judgment coming. Everything's fine. God's not mad with you. Just keep calm and carry on. Yet at the same time, in verse 12, these leaders, these prophets and priests were participating in what is called abomination. That's a reference to the introduction of foreign gods into the temple itself. This was the final straw of the Lord uh, removing his presence from the temple and handing the temple and the city over to be ransacked by the Babylonians. In verse 13, uh, we see the Lord likening himself to a farmer going out to gather the harvest, but instead of grapes and figs, instead he finds that the vines and the trees are sick, their leaves are withering, they haven't produced anything. This is a picture of Judah embodied in their leaders. They are known by their fruit or their lack thereof. So like Jeremiah, Jesus is pointing his listeners and us to a day of judgment, which he calls in verse 22, that day. This is a side of Jesus that we don't hear a lot about because it's a side of Jesus that maybe we prefer wasn't actually true. We're happy to have the meek and mild Jesus, the Jesus who's a good moral teacher, who tells us how to be nice people and live good lives, the the Jesus who tells us do not judge and love one another. But are we willing also to hear and believe the Jesus who calls us to repentance, Jesus who speaks in no uncertain terms about the coming judgment of God upon those who refuse to repent. About a hundred years after Jesus, a man called Marcion of Sinope became famous for his controversial teaching. He claimed that Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, was an angry and belligerent God, small g, God. And Jesus came to save us from this angry God by pointing us to the good and higher God who was above all of them, whom he called the Father. Now, uh, Marcion was officially declared a heretic in AD 144, but his ideas still reverberate through history and have actually been gaining a bit of popularity in more recent times. Not this idea that there's multiple gods and multiple levels of gods, but the notion that... uh, God or the Old Testament only speaks about judgment and then Jesus comes and only speaks about love in the New Testament. We might hear it framed in different ways. Uh, You might hear something like 
the Old Testament writers were, were speaking out of their experience and they interpreted things as God being angry and that God needed to be appeased by sacrifices. But, but Jesus came to show us that God has never actually really been angry. There's no need for us to make sacrifices, but simply to follow Jesus' moral example of non-violence and acceptance. Well, that's not the Jesus of the New Testament. Jesus affirms that God, his Father, is the same God of the Old Testament, and he's the judge of the whole earth. Uh, He's the God who is angry at human sin and evil. And he does it not the least by, as we've seen, quoting and pointing to Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah who spoke of God's judgment. Jesus speaks often about judgment. In fact, he speaks about judgment more than any other New Testament figure. And we'll see later in this series in Matthew 24 when Jesus speaks very vividly of a judgment that was going to come upon Jerusalem and the temple, a judgment that would be even more terrible than that of Jeremiah's day because it would be a judgment that was final. It would be the conclusion of the age in which God's presence would be marked by the temple. But this this judgment upon Jerusalem that actually happened in AD 70 is overshadowed by another even greater judgment, a judgment that the Gospels spend more time on than any other event. This judgment took place at the cross. So the judgment that occurred in Jeremiah's time, the judgment that occurred in 70 AD, and in fact every other time we read of the Lord bringing judgment upon people through the scriptures, they're all foretastes of the final judgment that is to come at the end of history. But the cross, the judgment of the cross wasn't merely a partial foretaste of that universal judgment to come. It was actually that final judgment brought forward in time when the full and complete wrath of God was poured out, not on all of humanity, but on one man, Jesus Christ, who bore it in our place. So Jesus doesn't dismiss or do away with the judgment of God. He affirms it, but then he steps under it to save us from it. The message of Jesus in the New Testament isn't God isn't really wrathful after all. A God without wrath would be a God who doesn't care about injustice and evil. A God who is unable and unwilling to act to bring about justice. No, rather the message of the New Testament is when the day of God's wrath comes, when all human evil is judged and the secrets of all are uncovered, how will you stand on that day? Will you be there on your own to to bear that judgment yourself? Or will you be there in Christ who's already borne that judgment on your behalf? So Jesus is warning us here about 
false prophets who who brush aside the notion of God's justice in the name of love, appearing to be like gentle sheep. However, their their teaching ravages our souls because it's a teaching that's unable to take us to the cross to see where both the full wrath and the full love of the Father is there in one united saving action. Now, we're to recognise these false prophets by their fruits in verses 16 to 20. But this begs the question, how, how are we to recognise the fruits in order to distinguish, to distinguish between the false prophets and the true prophets? Well, that's what Jesus tells us next by telling us what fruits we should not be looking for and what fruits we should be looking for. Now, verses 21 to 27 uh, normally are taken to be speaking of uh, individuals, um, speaking against a, a nominal or an empty profession of faith that's not accompanied by works, the, the kind of faith that James 2.17 says is dead faith. But we should still see this in the context of Jesus' warning against uh, false prophets uh, in the corporate sense. The Bible doesn't have this very individualistic way of thinking that we have today. It doesn't use the kind of terminology we might use like my personal relationship with God or inviting Jesus into my heart or into my life. Salvation in the Bible is not about my personal journey, my private journey to find the truth. Salvation is what God is doing to redeem and call out a people for himself. So the big issue for a person in the Bible was, how can I be sure that I am a member of this community of God's redeemed people? How can I be sure that I am a citizen of God's kingdom? And then the big question for this community of God's people was, who will lead us? Who will be our shepherd? Who will take us to green pastures and who will lead us into the kingdom of God? Who will be our priest? Who will mediate between us and God? Who will be our true prophet? Who will speak to us the words of God? Now, Jesus comes and he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, for my flock. I am that leader. I am that prophet. I am that priest. And so you need to come in and be a member of my flock. Come through the gate into the flock. And there you will hear my voice and with the flock you will follow me and I will lead you into the kingdom of God. I will lead you to the Father himself. So verses 21 and 23 are Jesus' warning against those who proclaim themselves to be the true shepherds, who who put forth their prophecies and their miraculous signs as proof that they can provide this entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Notice that they say not just Lord, but Lord, Lord. Culturally, anyone in authority could be called Lord. 
it's the equivalent of sir. But the, the double use of Lord here probably implies that they're invoking the Old Testament title Lord, which was used in the place of the actual name of God, Yahweh. So these people, they even have a very high view of Jesus. They're acknowledging him to be God. But their outward showiness and their boasting, their hypocrisy, as we've seen in earlier passages, they're all empty and meaningless if that's the only fruit that they have to show. Now, we can't ignore the fact that we we see this kind of thing today. Televangelists who travel the world on their private jets, who stay in lavish hotels, who boldly claim to have the gifts and the power to perform miracles in Jesus' name, but really they're just, just living this life of luxury from all the money that people have given in their hope to secure a blessing or a breakthrough. A very telling video clip I saw recently showed a man with very obvious cerebral palsy lining up uh, at the stage at a rally of a very well-known uh, healing evangelist to receive his healing. But you see uh, someone from the ministry come up to him and speak to him, uh, taking him aside and getting him to sit back down in his seat and to be told, pray for your own healing. Only those with less visible problems, such as back pain, headaches, were actually allowed up onto the stage. Uh, speaking about this experience, this man reported seen at the back of this auditorium being ignored, chronically ill people in wheelchairs, mothers holding their dying infants. What was the fruit of this evangelist's ministry? Well, it may have had the facade of miraculous signs and wonders and the promise of health and wealth and happiness. But in reality, many people were going away with their hopes dashed. And worse, they were going away with a distorted view of God who, in their eyes, didn't care enough for them to give them the healing that they wanted and that had been promised. Well, what's the true fruit that identifies a true prophet? Jesus tells us it is doing the will of my Father who is in heaven. What does that look like? Well, we're told in verse 24, it's hearing Jesus' words and doing them. Verses 24 to 27 are also a set of verses that are often applied to individuals. And they do convey a principle that's true for me as a person. I must hear Jesus' words. And he tells me, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Jesus' words do provide for me a solid foundation for my life. But looking at this parable of the wise and foolish builders in the flow of what Jesus has been saying about false prophets and true prophets, and God's work among his people as a community, we actually get a, a different perspective on this parable. 
In, in other places in the New Testament where the image of building is used, it's not God's people who do the building. God's people are the house that is being built. Ephesians 2 tells us that we, the church, are the building being built by God. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3 describes the ministry of the apostles as a participation in this building work. Paul says, According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. He's referring there to the fact that he he came and he brought the gospel initially to the people in Corinth. He then moved on and other people have now come in and continue that work. But he says, let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. See that this is a reflection of Jesus' teaching. He speaks of the day in which the fruit of their work will be shown up to be either gold, silver and precious stones, which will endure, or wood, hay and straw, which will be burnt up and come to nothing. So I think Jesus' parable here isn't portraying two individuals who are trying to work out their own personal journey of faith and obedience, but a true wise prophet who leads people to Jesus to hear his words and obey them and a false or foolish prophet who claims to lead people to Jesus and his words but doesn't actually give them the truth of the gospel or or call them to repentance and faith and obedience to Jesus. So be warned, Jesus says, of false prophets who are like the foolish builder who build something that looks big and impressive and spectacular but it's built on an unstable foundation of sand and not the solid rock of the gospel of Jesus. The rain and the flood and the wind of the day of judgment will come and all of those who have been part of that building will come crashing down. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's a prayer that the church and we as a church must always be praying. 
we can so easily allow the the idols to come in and we're so easily drawn to the the prophets who offer a nice sounding message of peace and comfort without the call to repentance without the call to a a single-minded allegiance to the risen and reigning Lord Jesus. Now, obviously, the idols of our day are not the statues and the shrines and religious rituals that the first century believers were surrounded by, but we still have our modern idols and our modern traditions that still threaten to take us away from the gospel and from the call of Jesus to love him by keeping his commandments. We stand in a place of opportunity at this moment as a local church. We're about to resume face-to-face worship after three or so months of being scattered and we'll be doing so in a new location It may be that the Father uh, has been and will use, can still use this time to cleanse us of some of the idols that we've had, both as persons, but also as a church. Maybe there are some traditions that we've held onto as if they've been necessary to our life as a church, but maybe this new setting won't actually give us the opportunity to, to maintain them. Uh, we'll be able to experience and celebrate the familiarity of being together with one another again in worship. But we must also be ready to face some challenges. Maybe some things will have to be done differently. We may see some new faces joining us. Uh, We may see that our new setting brings us um, new or new opportunities, we may find that as we come back together again, there may be some new tensions, there may be some old tensions that will arise again between one another that will require patience and forgiveness and love. So let's fix our eyes on Jesus in faith that according to his promise, he is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, our reading this morning began with the call to enter the narrow gate and walk the narrow path. That's in verse 13. This image reminds me of my early morning walks in the hills face zone above Aldana and Roslyn Park. There's a number of walking tracks there that zigzag up the hill. And on these tracks... You have to tread carefully, especially when the rain makes them muddy and slippery. And and as in my case, when you've got a dog who runs ahead and threatens to pull you over. As God's people, we are on this journey together along the narrow path. Our destination is the New Jerusalem and our eventual arrival there is sure, it's guaranteed But that doesn't mean that the journey won't be easy. The way is narrow and sometimes dangerous. There'll be stumbling along the way. There'll be the occasional sprayed ankle. There'll be some who may decide that it's too hard and they'll turn back. 
and go back to walk along the paved footpath and the wide streets. But because we're on this journey together, we're here to help one another along the way, to support each other on the steep turns, to to rest alongside those who are weary, to to catch those who stumble, to bind up the wounds of those who are injured. And we must do so with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Today's passage and the whole Sermon on the Mount concludes with this comment about the people acknowledging Jesus' authority. Not that he had something new or novel to say because he's, he's really just reaffirmed all that God has already given in his covenant declaration. But he's opened up the grace of the covenant and of the law in a way that no one before or since has done. And in doing so, he's pointed us to himself who came to fulfil that law perfectly and completely. Su Hyong, as we were finishing our preparations, just sent through these words, uh, which he's sharing with the Mandarin congregation, and I'll share with you too. He says, firstly, we, we saw that Jesus started this sermon with the covenant blessings of God, and the rest of his teachings flow out of that. The blessings of God are what God has given to us and not what we do to get them. If we don't get this right, then our whole thinking will be skewed. We won't get anything right after that. Jesus then goes on to teach that worship, which is the way we live, is not about external actions, but the transformation of the heart. As Jesus said in 6.21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This transformation also is not something that we can develop ourselves. It's the work of the Spirit of God within us. So these are the two twin pillars in our understanding of the Sermon on the Mount. The, The blessings of the Father given to us and the work of the Spirit to bring about that transformation where we, uh, the law uh, has come to us and the first thing it's done, as we've been seeing, is it's revealed our sin. It's brought condemnation upon us and it's driven us to the cross where we've received the grace and the mercy that Jesus offers from the cross. But that means now that we have this this new relationship to God's law. We can look at the commands of Jesus where he, he brings out the beauty of his father's commands given in the, the covenant. We can look at those and see the beauty and the majesty and the wonder of them. And Jesus said to the people, uh, if you're weary and burdened and heavy laden, in other words, if, if you've come under that, that, that demand of the law that places this pressure on you, he said, come to me and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you. So uh, you're not just free to go and do whatever you want now. 
you still hear Jesus' words and you still obey his words. But he says, for my burden is easy. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. We have this this new relationship now to to God and his commands where it's now a delight to hear what he says and to obey them. So let's let's move forward as his people uh, hearing the words of Jesus and by his grace are seeking to obey them.